0: So when I discovered testing and experimentation, I realized that I don't have to have all the answers, but I now know how I can find them. Because the true experts in fundraising or sales or whatever are the customers, the donors.
1: welcome to the authentically successful show i'm carol schultz founder and ceo of vertical elevation a talent equity and leadership coaching and advisory firm we partner with founders and ceos to create talent-centric organizations either where they don't currently exist or rebuild companies into talent-centric organizations we are committed to supporting your vision and values by creating healthy successful companies leveraging the best talent retention development, and succession strategies. Listen at the end of the show for information about becoming my next guest on one of the most important podcasts for building thriving companies. Here we go. My guest today is Tim Kachuriak, founder and chief innovation and optimization officer for Next After, a fundraising research lab consultancy and training institute that works with charities, nonprofits, and NGOs to help them grow their resource capacity. A nonprofit thought leader, Tim is the author of the book, Optimize Your Fundraising, lead researcher and co-author of the online fundraising scorecard, Why Should I Give to You?, and The Mid-Level Donor Crisis. He has trained organizations in fundraising optimization around the world and is a frequent speaker at international nonprofit conferences. Welcome, Tim.
0: Hey, Carol, thanks for having me today.
1: My pleasure. So I'm really interested in your background that you look like you have committed your whole life to nonprofit work, and I'm really interested in how you came to that.
0: Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, most people I know, and myself included, that work in the nonprofit space uh, didn't take a very direct pathway there, Uh, and that was certainly true for me. So, So my story is I graduated from college right after 9-11, which is a horrible, horrible time to enter into the job force, especially for somebody who desperately wanted to work in the field of marketing and advertising. Uh, but fortunately, I, I worked at a country club all during high school and college, and I like to, you know, joke. I had 432 aunts and um, uncles that were captains of industry. So I, <laughs> yeah, right. You know, I, I, call, I called. Uh, I called Uncle Joe. You know, Uncle Joe uh, <laughs> happened to be the president of the second largest ad agency in Pittsburgh, where I grew up. He was the president of the country club. I went and met with him, did my little doggy pony show. He's like, look, I'd love mm-hmm. to hire you, kid, but you know, we just laid off 30 people yesterday. You know, 9-11 has hit Mm. our industry hard, Mm -hmm. our agency harder. I can't help you. So that was kind of my, my experience coming out of college. So I'm, you know, just knocking on doors, trying to find somebody to give me a shot. I ended up meeting a serial entrepreneur actually at a golf outing. And he's like, I've got all these little businesses. Maybe you can do some projects for me. And then he said, Hey, why don't you start your own business? And I said, well, I don't know how to do that. He's like, well, I do. We've got an incubator on in the second floor of my office building. I'll give you a desk. I'll introduce you to people. I'll be your partner. And the rest is up to you, kid. So unbelievable. I'm like, yeah, I mean, I'm living in my parents' basement. I've yeah, got nothing unbelievable. to lose. I mean, it's right. about the absolute best time to start a business. Boy. Uh, so I did that for five years out of college, started doing just general marketing stuff. We bought all this video mm-hmm. equipment. We mm-hmm. made TV commercials and corporate videos. And then I hired this guy that was a really talented, like, web developer person and we started making websites and they're like, okay, well, how do we get traffic to the websites? So we got into digital marketing. Um, and it was just a great, honestly, like learning experience. I mean, coming out of college, I had no pre- preconceived notion as to where the bar was. And so, um, you know, and being very insecure, you know, I, I, I think we, we, we did a really good job of, of leaping over that bar in many cases. So I learned a lot about business, about getting clients, keeping them happy, digital marketing. Um, but I, you know, about five years in, I just felt this kind of like nagging sensation that like, I want to do something that has more significance, you know? Like I've I always been like really attracted to causes and like things that like change the world, you know, like most uh, people my age. And, um, I, I got, uh, involved in like participating in a, in a, like a, a capital campaign. So I was doing all the marketing materials for this capital campaign to build this new building. And, it was like really cool because it was the first time that I was doing something I felt like I was wired to do, which is marketing, but doing it for a cause I cared about. And I was like, this is it, right? This is how I want to spend the rest of my life. So a bold kind of career choice. I said, you know, if I want to be involved in actually like doing something that actually makes a difference in the world, I should probably uh, move into the nonprofit space. So um, in a matter of two months, I sold my business. We sold our house. My wife was eight months pregnant with our second child. We had a 16-month-old, and we moved from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and I went to work for this nonprofit. And the day I got there, like the founder of the organization um, had a heart attack. Uh, And it's important to point out at this point in the story that correlation is not causation, at least I hope not. So I hope I wasn't the cause of this. uh (laughs) (laughs) sure you weren't. But um, anyway, he ended up passing away. And we went from being a $36 million a year organization to 18 in 12 months. So it was like just this downward spiral. Oh, and I was hired to do digital communications mm-hmm. for the organization. And uh, they're like, look, whatever you're doing on the internet, figure out how that stuff generates revenue because you know we're, we're dying. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was like my first violent shove into fundraising. And then I came to discover that there's basically – these marketing agencies that work exclusively with nonprofit organizations to help them raise money. Right. Interesting. Uh, I had no idea this existed. And so we worked Mm. with one based out of Dallas called K major communications. I got to know the CEO. He said, look, I don't know what your future looks like here. It looks pretty grim. Um, we've been doing direct mail fundraising for 30 years and we would love to get into this, you know, this brave new digital world. Would you consider coming to Dallas and helping us start a digital fundraising division? And I said, yeah, sounds great. So that's how I got to Dallas in 2008. I was there for about two, three years. And then we were acquired by another agency. And it was during that time between those two different experiences that I saw that there was like a a huge opportunity to really focus on optimizing fundraising. Mm. There's lots of service agencies that do fundraising. Mm -hmm. But what the web represents is perhaps... The greatest behavioral laboratory that's ever existed. We can track everything that people do. I know it sounds spooky and, and kind of creepy, but it's actually really cool if you're a marketer. And so, with digital, you know, fundraising optimization, we can actually run rigorous scientific experiments and try to understand what works. Go. So one of the things that's you know kind of a spooky and creepy about the internet is that we can track everything that happens, right? Which means that we <laughs> mm-hmm. can actually like be able to run experiments in real time, right? Where we're testing two different versions of an ad, a landing page, an email, right. what have you. And we can actually like discern based on people's behavior and how they respond, what works and what doesn't. And so that's mm-hmm. kind of what led me on this journey to start uh, what, what is today next after.
1: That's really great. So you founded the company in 2012. Yeah. That's correct.
0: Yes. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, Tell me a little bit about, are are you bootstrapped? Where's your money come from? Like what that, what that looks like. Do you have investors?
0: No. uh, uh, You know, honestly, uh, I'm grateful for that. So we we bootstrapped the company from the very beginning. So I, I started the, the company by myself, single shingle. Um, and you know, I had a couple contracts and my first iteration of next After is I thought that I would create a fundraising optimization division within other companies. So like my first clients were other agencies or technology companies, Mm -hmm. um, which was a great kind of like, you know, ramp up to start a business because they, you know, they pay better than nonprofits quite frankly. Right. Right. Um, uh, but what I came to discover, and it, took, it didn't take that long to figure out, is that all they saw is just something shiny that they could go sell to more of their clients. So I became nothing more than a hired gun, kind of mm-hmm. like, you know, outsourced sales guy. And once we'd get the contract, I'd have nothing to do with the execution of it, and they would, you know, they'd just mess it up. So I was like, well, this right. is not going to work. So then mm-hmm. I started working with nonprofits directly, weaned myself off of those contracts, and, and then, you know, I hired one person, and then another person, and, you know, we, we operated as a three- three person shop for Mm -hmm. a period of time and uh you know then we made the jumps to like you know seven to twelve to twenty and Mm -hmm. you know we're now I think right at about forty employees. Right. Yeah. So
1: you've got a team of 40 people. Along the road, you say you started from three and you've grown that up over the last nine years. What would you say are the biggest challenges you've encountered and the biggest mistakes you've made and how have you adjusted uh, to do things in a, in a different way.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, so, so at one point I saw the opportunity to like, for us to kind of create, um, you know, software, right. And kind of get into like the, the software game. Right. I mean, like there's a lot of, um, excitement around technology companies and SaaS based companies and, you know, the whole recurring revenue model is very attractive to many people. Um, and so we kind of went down that path, and we we, we built a product, and um, we discovered very quickly that um, we are not a product company, we are not a technology company, mm-hmm. um, and that you know, uh, fortunately, it wasn't like too big of a burn, uh, but you know, it did. I mean, we we took on some investors to go you know invest in us building this product company, and uh, and it totally flopped. So it was it was probably one of the biggest gaffes I think that we've, we've made in our journey. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we learned from that and it, it was kind of like, okay, well, no, what we are is a service company and mm-hmm. let's figure out how to do that better than anyone else. Mm-hmm. And that's what we try to do.
1: Okay. So tell me, you know, over the years, you as you say, we, as we talked, we've got, for, you've got for, about 40 current employees what kind of turnover have you experienced and why have you, would you believe you've had that?
0: Um, it depends on the different uh, part of the company, but like mm-hmm. mainly in the client service areas where we've experienced the most turnover. And at first it was because we weren't doing hiring correctly. Right. Um,
1: Very common. we would hire That's
0: based it. off of like, here's people that we know, there's people that we like, you know, we've actually like worked with them as industry allies in the past. Mm-hmm. So of course they can come into our environment oh, and, yeah. uh, you know, just, just kill it. <laughs> not. Uh, no, that was not the case. <laughs> right. Right. Of course. So, not we ended up realizing that we needed to hire somebody to help us um, mm-hmm. really bring data into the hiring decision making process I love it. so now when people interview with next after they take a battery of four different assessments uh, we have a an exercise that they have to go through like a, an assignment that they have to kind of complete mm-hmm. there's a rigorous behavioral or yeah you know, uh, you know, behavioral based interview process mm-hmm. that they go through and um, there's multiple rounds, multiple people doing the interview. So it's like a very, very, like, honestly, like, if you get through the interview process, it says something about your character. <laughs> right. <laughs> because you're willing to kind of go through, you know, it's a lot kinda- of hoops to jump through. Yeah. That's right. Uh, But that's honestly really helped us a lot and really trying to figure out who are the right people because based on some of the data we get back from those assessments, we can assess whether this person's the right cultural fit for the organization. Mm -hmm. Do they have the right skill sets they need for the job, both hard and soft skills? Mm -hmm. And do they have the capacity, which is the most important thing, which means can they learn and are they eager to learn? Are they intellectually Mm -hmm. curious and want to continue to grow? um themselves. So that those are things that we kind of look for and, and the data's been really helpful in that. Mm-hmm. Four tests
1: is a lot. I'm a believer personally that you know testing should be used only as an adjunct, right? As a tool to help you do it. So I'm kind of curious as that you're putting that much reliance on testing it, rather than the human connection to find out, you know, yeah. is this person a cultural fit by asking kinds of questions where you'll learn about that. Cause I don't believe a test can ever substitute that human connection.
0: Uh, I totally agree. What the test does is it tells us what questions that we need to ask, gotcha. right? So, but- like, it, it points to like areas that this person may struggle. Mm-hmm. So we can press into those specific right. areas and try to get some clarity around whether or not this is something that number one can be overcomable, manageable, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and ultimately an area that we can help this person grow. Because if not, I don't want to ruin somebody's life. I mean, yep. like, hiring somebody and then firing somebody really sucks. Yep. Uh, and I I want to make sure that I'm doing as much on my end to make sure that that doesn't happen.
1: What were you not doing? I mean, forget about the fact, you know, hiring friends and family is, in my opinion, never a very good idea, but (laughs) what were you missing in the interviews? I mean, were you just not interviewing for culture? Uh, Were you not interviewing for, you know, nonprofit ain't the same thing as for profit?
0: Right. Well, One thing I think, especially in the earlier days, like the first few years, we didn't really know what our culture was, right? Mm -hmm. Like culture is not something that you declare. It's something you discover because it's the embodiment of who you are as a leader and the kind of people that you attract early when it's, you know, just kind of like, you know, going from one to three kind of thing. So. I think uh, once we went through the process of really codifying our culture, like getting clarity on what is our vision, like where are we ultimately trying to go? What is mm-hmm. our mission? How are we going to get there? And then what are like our core values mm-hmm. that are going to be able to help people understand that if I'm doing these things, I'm moving towards, you know, this vision uh, and achievement of the mission. So so that was a really important step for us to take as a company, uh, because that's really how you define your culture. It's your vision, your mission, your values. Uh, and that's- right. That's critical.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and do you think that it took time for you to do that because of your inexperience? And the reason I ask that is because I, you know, I had meet with, and I have a number of clients and their founders. And when we talk about culture, often it's because they've been with so many companies, they know exactly what they're looking to build
0: and what works. Yeah. I, I had kind of the opposite. I knew exactly what I did not want to build. Mm. So I had some, you know, I did, I had some experiences where it was like, I I saw um, the leaders would say certain things that all sounded very, very good. Yeah. But their actions were a direct contradiction to that. And like, you know, even you asked the fact, you know, bootstrap versus take on investor. Well, I worked for a company that had a very big, you know, sugar daddy investor, you know, Mm -hmm. those pouring millions of dollars in this company. We never were profitable. Um, And, What happened is we had to compromise our convictions in order to meet our financial obligations. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is we had to take on clients we shouldn't have taken on. Right. We had to go sell things to our clients that they didn't need. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and to me that was like, okay, well, this company has no integrity. I can't Mm -hmm. work there anymore if I want to have integrity myself. Right. Right. So, so it was things like that. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, um, we try to be like very fiscally conservative as a company, meaning, mm-hmm. you know, most privately held companies like ours uh, don't have a lot of like dry powder on hand. Right. You, because like, you know, the way that like the tax stuff works, everything flows through the the yeah. ownership group. And yeah. so they drain the tanks every year. And uh, I don't think that's a good idea. So, you know, from the very beginning, we started, you know, stockpiling cash. Because it's not always going to be like the gravy train and biscuit wheels. You're going to hit some rough patches. You need to be able to weather the storm or have dry powder on hand to be able to invest in a significant opportunity that you see Mm -hmm. in the market. Right. Mm -hmm. So we have two funds, our permanence fund, which is kind of that rainy day fund. And then we have our opportunity fund uh, so that we can continue to invest in future growth.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to step back a little bit to your your comments about knowing what you didn't want to do, and you know a company that that really just throws its values to the wind to make a buck and and you know my my experience has taught me you know that boils down to really poor leadership and a really lousy CEO who hasn't yeah. put things together the right way in a way that can help you know you say the investor pouring in millions of dollars. And, you know, there goes the integrity by the wayside, because you have to start selling to people you shouldn't be selling to. That's poor leadership, in my opinion. Right. And, yeah. and I'm, and I'm yeah. wondering in that particular company, you know, how long had that CEO been there and, you know, why somebody didn't have him removed? <laughs> like, the, the, like the main investor with all the money.
0: Yeah. I mean, they're, they're great questions. I think a lot of those sales people, or a lot of those uh, you know CEOs like that, are really great salespeople, and they're really good at kind of like managing the board and telling one kind of version of the story and mm-hmm. um, pointing the finger at other people. Yeah, but you're right. I mean, it does. It comes down to leadership, and yeah. um, I don't know. I'm I'm a very much a pragmatist, right? Yeah. So it's like if if yeah. something, if if I know that something is not going to like eventually become profitable, I'm pretty quick to kind of like, okay, mm-hmm. great, that was a failed experiment. Let's take what we can learn from it and let's move on, right? Kind of- but yeah. not everyone's like
1: that. <laughs> well, you yeah, know, it's, it's, that's, that's the interest with human beings, right? So you talked about having two funds. Tell me a little bit about where your money comes from, how you're raising it so that you can go off and do, you know, great things for other people.
0: Yeah, so, I mean... Really, there's, there's three kind of components to our company. So there, there's like the fundraising research lab, and we really do two types of research. We do, we do forensic research studies, and we do applied research. Uh, what, what What I mean by forensic research studies, we're analyzing large amounts of data across the nonprofit sector, and we're looking for patterns in the data that lead to opportunities to unlock greater digital fundraising performance. So we are hyper, hyper-focused. We believe digital is the future of fundraising, but you'll be surprised at how underdeveloped it is, uh, in the nonprofit space. Um, the challenge we've run into is that the kind of data we're most interested in analyzing either doesn't exist or it's not readily accessible. Interesting. And that's because what we want to do is experience the charity, the nonprofit, the NGO from the donors point of view. Okay. So we found to get that perspective, the most effective way to do that is by becoming donors ourselves. So that's what we do. About four times a year, we'll launch a major mystery donor study where we'll subscribe to hundreds of organizations at the same time. We'll monitor everything they send us. We'll analyze it. We'll wait for the organizations to ask us to become a donor. And when they do that, we go online to their website and we'll give right. a donation as small as $20, as large as $5,000. Mm-hmm. And then we continue to monitor how they communicate engage with us over right. time. Right, the donor experience. experience gap yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're trying yep. to get here's the gaps in the marketplace. How do we fix them? Got it. So that's the forensic research. The applied research is where we take the things that we learn where the gaps exist mm-hmm. and we run experiments to try to move the, the needle and get more things to, you know, get more people to donate. So mm-hmm. that might look like, let's test this version of a donation page versus this version of a donation page. Right. And let, let's monitor what the results are. We'll test this email versus this email, this ad versus this ad. Mm. And what we're trying to figure out is, you know there's a lot of misinformation about what works. Yeah, And a lot of the long held best practices are certainly not true. So that's the research side. We take everything we learned from the research in, uh, side and we bring it over to the Next After Institute, which is the training and equipping arm of our company. Um, we develop different resources, templates, guides, ebooks. We've got eight different certification courses that we've developed mm. to help people become more effective fundraisers. Um, and the reason why we started that is because we realized somewhere along the way, that we may not be a nonprofit organization. I mean, we're very much a for-profit company, mm-hmm. but we're also a cause-based organization. Right. And we believe that our cause is to decode what works in fundraising and get that into the hands of as many people that are doing that work as possible so that mm-hmm. we can together unleash the most generous generation in the history world. That's our vision. That's where we want to go. Can't do that by just working with a handful of clients at a time, mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, we have a list of 70,000 people that work at nonprofits that subscribe to our content, that take our courses, that come to our conferences. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to constantly build into those folks. Well, when you do that, when you're constantly helping people, eventually they get to a point saying, you know, the best way you can help me is by actually doing it for me, right? Like being my agency. And so that's Mm -hmm. the third part of our company is our consultancy. We have about 40 uh, clients. They're all nonprofit organizations. Uh, They're, they're, they're all very large nonprofits. So Mm -hmm. the nature of our work, we have to work with organizations that have considerable scale. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, we basically help them implement the things that we've found through our research and testing that, um, continue to develop, you know, predictable, um, revenue growth.
1: It's really interesting. So what's the competitive landscape look like for what you're doing?
0: Great question. Um, We are very unique in our space. And Mm -hmm. and the reason why, there's a lot of nonprofit fundraising agencies that exist. I mean, there's tons of them. Um, Most of them that work on the mass marketing side are direct mail shops that over time have bolted on a digital fundraising division. And I worked at two of those such agencies that were direct mail shops first. They'd been doing that for 35 years or whatever. And they said, look, you know, we we hear our clients are asking about Mm -hmm. digital. We need to have a a service offering. We'll go and hire a person, let you build a little team, and, you know, you can be the digital fundraising division. The problem Mm -hmm. with that is that the agency's entire business model revolves around direct mail. So, what that means is it caps the potential for digital to go deeper in right. terms of leading the exchange as opposed to following right mm-hmm. and so what happens is if i go and prove that i can actually make more money for the charity by giving you know a million dollars to to google you know what i mean as opposed to putting a million pieces of mail in the mailbox yeah. then all of a sudden they've got to lay off 30 people because their business model is focused all around the direct mail side of things so that's when i realized that there's no way i could do this inside of another agency i got to start one that just is digital first that focuses on that as the primary yeah Mm-hmm.
1: So what would you say are, are the biggest challenges facing you know, both your company as a dig you know as a digital agency and your industry?
0: Yeah. I mean, talent, number one. Yeah. I mean, we we have there's so much demand um for what we have to offer. And I can't hire people and train them and ramp them up fast enough. I mean, it's it's really it's mm-hmm. frustrating on quite frustrating to me. I don't know mm-hmm. if we have exactly the right um, scaling model for that side, you know, the client service side of our business, right? Mm -hmm. So that's something that we're, we're questioning as a leadership team. We're going through a whole new process with EOS to try to figure out, can we actually make it easier for people to understand how, uh, you know, they're getting an A in their job every single day. So things like that, that I think is something that's a challenge for us. and I think it's a challenge for the greater industry as well.
1: What do you, what do you tend to find from a talent standpoint that really works for you?
0: Um, well, as I mentioned, the first and foremost, we look for people that have high capacity i don 't mm-hmm. necessarily need you to know how to do all of these things, like 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 digital things. Yeah. I need yeah. to know that you have the capacity to be able to learn those things quickly and be effective um, right. you know, with these with these skills that I can teach you so that 's the first and foremost thing that we 're looking for is mm-hmm. people to do that. Uh, I mentioned also like insatiable curiosity, the nature. Of our work is constantly questioning right. and saying, well, what if we tried this? Or what if we tested mm-hmm. that? Or what if actually right. our donors really care about this? Yeah, right? So great. that insatiable curiosity makes for a really good employee at Next After as well. And then I would also say, like, growth minded people, right? So people that like get excited by seeing you know, the needle go up and to the right. Mm-hmm. What's your executive team look like? How many? So we have four members of our executive team, and then we have another four that makes up our senior leadership team.
1: Okay. And what is the diversity of those eight people?
0: Um, they're like in terms of like demography. So I think- Well, uh, I mean, you know, know, are
1: you made up of a bunch of, you know, white guys?
0: <laughs> no, there are no several way. white guys. <laughs> <laughs> there's some, there's, there's some white guys. There's some Hispanic, um, you know, folks, there's some, um, you know, there's women. So, I mean, we're yeah. diverse-ish, I guess.
1: Yeah, well, and 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 so if you look at your senior leadership team, the four of you, are there any women on that?
0: Uh, our executive leadership team? Mm-hmm. No, it's 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 uh, it's it's four dudes. Yeah. Okay,
1: and the senior leadership team? Uh, two After, women. Two women. Yeah. So so fifty percent at least of them. Okay. Yeah. So you you know you're doing so much to change how people do things. Um, have you looked at your own? Diversity. That you know. Do we need to do a better job of this? You know, where are we? You know, where are we? You know, where, if anywhere, are we lacking? You know, when you look at when you look at women being over fifty percent of the population now.
0: Yeah. So um, three years and that ago, that can be threatening I-
1: to those four dudes.
0: No, yeah, no, totally. So so I'd say about three years ago, two or three years ago, mm-hmm. uh, only 20% of our company uh, was comprised of women. Okay. Uh, now it's 65% of our company Fantastic. is comprised of
1: women. That's really great.
0: We've also, you know, really made a conscious effort to try to get more diversified people into our hiring pool Good. and then also train our staff that are doing the interview process to be aware of and remove Mm -hmm. any sort of conscious or unconscious bias that they may have. Right. And so that's why we partly why we, we rely so heavily in assessments because I want to find people that actually have the right ingredients, regardless of, you know, their, you know, they look like their their, their gender. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah, exactly. Mm
1: -hmm. Background. Okay. That's really good to hear that you're doing that. What if anything bothers you or bugs you about your industry, what would you like to see changed?
0: Uh, You know, there's a scarcity mindset in the nonprofit space, um, which leads to a tremendous amount of um, unhealthy risk aversion. So nonprofits are risk averse by nature Mm -hmm. um, and probably for good reason, right? Because if you're actually receiving support from donors, you feel the heavy burden of responsibility to mm-hmm. steward those gifts well, right, right? And not waste those donors' money. And mm-hmm. your donors actually demand that of you. That's that's your donor bill of rights between you and your donors that you're going to be a good steward. What I question though is, is good stewardship doing the same thing over and over again and expecting the same results in a world that's <laughs> constantly changing? changing or right. <laughs> is good stewardship... Yeah. Mitigating risk, testing mm-hmm. things, and then rolling out based on what the data tells mm-hmm. you, which may lead you to a breakthrough and a whole different way of doing mm-hmm. your business than yeah. you did in the past. Yeah. I would so say that's the, the latter. kind of stuff that I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's and honestly, that's that's one of the things that I love about Next After is because we go in helping our clients optimize their landing pages, right? Mm-hmm. And we go out optimizing the culture of the organization because mm-hmm. it begins to spill over into the whole rest of the organization where they start to, you know, move the conversation from how are we going to do this? How are we going to do that? We don't have enough resources to like, man, what if we tried this? What if we tried that? What if our donors were care okay about this? And it's a whole mm-hmm. bunch more exciting place to be a part of. Uh, and we've seen it. It's, it's, it's transformative. So that's, that's really fun for me.
1: Well, that's great, Kim. And, and, I, and you, you know, you've kind of brought something to my mind of the paradox around being a for-profit company, working with nonprofit companies with that potentially scarcity mindset. Mm-hmm. How are you able to get companies to cough up money <laughs> when, when they don't have much?
0: Yeah. So, so nonprofit is, is a little bit of a misnomer. So okay. the charitable giving space is like a $452 billion a year industry. So it's very, very large. Right. Nonprofits employ 10% of the U.S. workforce. It's the third largest mm-hmm. in- industry next to like manufacturing and Something else. <laughs> really? Um wow, that's yeah. so interesting. And it's and and there are billion dollar nonprofit organizations. Their annual revenues yes. are are in the billions, right? Right. Um but they might like you to think that they're broke. Well, it's yeah. Uh, I mean, you know,
1: we have sometimes. one here. We have one here in Denver like that. Yeah. Um yeah. you yeah. know, it's a marvelous uh animal welfare organization. They do amazing, mm-hmm. amazing work. Uh, and they've got tens of millions of dollars in the bank, and would like everybody to think they have no money.
0: Yeah. See, <laughs> um,
1: and and it, and I just that really just sets me sideways.
0: Yeah, I think so. So let me let, let me let me see if this helps helps with that. Okay. So this is this is one of the biggest challenges in the nonprofit space. We're trying to solve some of like the biggest societal problems in the world. Right. With two arms tied behind our backs, right? Mm-hmm. Because nobody's questioning how much money freaking Google is spending, like, you know, right. tracking all of our, our stuff or nobody's <laughs> yeah. like, you, know, or you Facebook. know, calculating how much money Facebook is doing yeah, to Twitter, like create this meta stuff. universe mm-hmm. or all that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And yet nonprofits are scrutinized and they say, look, you can't, you can't put more than 10% of my dollar into growing your, you know, your, your, your organization. And I, I say, well, that's, that's bullcrap, right? Right. Because yeah. the, here, here's, here's the example I give. We're, me, we're measuring efficiency, not impact, right? Two different, very different things. So here's, here's, my, here's my illustration. I've got two mm. organizations. They do the exact same thing. These are nonprofit organizations. Yep. One is a $1 million annual budget organization, mm-hmm. and they have 99% efficiency, which means 99 cents out of every dollar you give goes wow. directly to their program. Fantastic. Right? Yeah. The other organization is a $100 million a year organization. They have a 50% efficiency, which means 50% yeah, yeah. The of the dollar goes to yeah. the impact. So one is creating $50 million of impact. The other one is creating $999,000. Which one is doing better? Depends on how you look at it. <laughs> <laughs> I know,
1: but which one yeah, is I mean, actually- You're going to always really- get that answer from, you know, answer from somebody like me. Well, it depends. How do you
0: measure impact? Right. Well, impact is how 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 much is ultimately going to solve the societal problem. Like you know, if we're gonna like really try right. to solve like hunger, cancer, all those things, right. the, the one it, with like, the fifty percent wage. Right. Yeah, we've got we've got to do it like with like billions and billions of dollars. So there's a great yes. great TED talk you need to listen to, Dan Pilata. Brilliant. I mean, this is like probably going back 10 or 12 years and it's okay. still super relevant. Dan Pallotta, um, and he talks about like this, you know, this glass ceiling for nonprofits. He gets into all these different issues. Another issue he brings up is like nonprofits can't hire the best talent, mm-hmm, that's right? right? Because we can't pay them what somebody in the for-profit space that's can pay right. them. And he gives an example. I've got a Harvard MBA. It's coming out of school, you know, and say they can make, I don't know, the going rate is like they can make $400,000 going to work for some big consulting yeah. company. Yep, yep, yep. Or they can make $99,000 working as the executive director of a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Well, the logical person will say, well, look, I'll go and take the 400 grand, give $100,000 away to a nonprofit, be put on the <laughs> board and tell yeah. the poor, executive director, what to do all day. You know what I mean? So it's like, do I want to make money or do good? And he says, it shouldn't be a binary choice.
1: Yeah. And, and that is something that I'm, I've made a note and I'm going to listen to because I think that's, that's a fascinating, it's a, you know, and that's where you get the answer for me. Well, it depends, right? The one who's, the one right. who's actually making the most impact is the one who's, you know, got the $50 million to spend, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right. Even though half their money has gone to waste for whatever, for whatever reason that is, rather well, than is the, waste you or know. Growth?
0: Yeah. Waste right. or growth. Right. I mean, like, um, uh, you know, we get slapped on the hand for doing advertising, but what about the billions and billions and billions of dollars spent by consumer brand companies to get us to drink sugary beverages that are yeah. killing us? Don't, right? even sorry. Sorry. Don't
1: even get me started on that or we're going we're gonna to sideline this entire interview um, <laughs> and, start, and start talking about, obviously, our combined feelings of that whole market, right? Well, and it's because, as you and I both know, lobbyists lobbyists win a lot of stuff. Um, regardless of uh, the fact that they may be very evil, right? The pharmaceutical industry, for example, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, all they care about is keeping people sick mm. because yeah. by keeping keep people sick, right? You know, they make a lot more money selling drugs right. to, to fix yeah. the problem of, you know, everything you've just talked about you know, corn syrup and everything. And you, like I said, let's, let's not, otherwise we're going to hijack this entire interview and start talking about that, which is an important subject, (laughs) but that's for another conversation. (laughs) So, um, so, so I I think that's a good segue. Why is the nonprofit sector so highly regulated like that then where they can't, you know, you can only spend X amount on marketing and advertising. Why is that? Because they're not paying taxes.
0: Well, that's the primary reason. I yeah. mean, to to get the designation to be a five hundred one c three charitable mm-hmm. organization, um, yeah, you don't pay taxes, and so there's a lot of rules that come with that that yeah. privilege, uh, and to be able to also provide the donors with a tax deduction for their contribution to your organization, right. uh, you you know you have to meet those requirements as well. Of course, some of them are self imposed though, like the you know how much you can spend on overhead versus on you know programs. Uh, is something that's been self imposed by kind of watchdog organizations in our space, like Charity Watch and Charity Navigator, and mm-hmm. you know, groups like that that measure all that stuff. Um, but I think the reason why we measure that, we measure like how we spend the money versus like the impact because it's like, easier to measure. Nonprofits mm-hmm. are required to file the Form 990, which is a public document that has, here's how we spend every single dollar. I mean, it's a 50-page document. Mm-hmm. So we can go take all that stuff and, you know, slice it eight, 7,000 different ways. Um, but we have a really hard time measuring, like, how are we doing on the, the hunger issue, the homelessness issue, right? Yeah. How are we doing at, like, you know, creating a more equitable society, right? Like, so, like, those are the things that we don't really do a good job of measuring, mm-hmm. um, and it's a shame.
1: Yeah, it's, it's. I mean, it's super complex, I have to imagine, because, you know, I, I just think about myself and I rarely answer the phone outside of business hours. <laughs> uh, and I often right. don't answer it during business hours because I'm relatively certain it's spam. But um, particularly outside of business hours, when when somebody does happen to catch me, and, you know, they're, I'm calling from, you know, the PB, you know, policemen, you know, the PBA, right? The police are looking to get money for the the police. You know, my first question is how much of the money that I would potentially give you is going to the charity? Mm-hmm. 10%. I'm like, why would I give you any money? Right. 10%. So 90% well, is going to, you know, your organization raising money for them. I'm sorry. Right. I just yeah. assume, you know, log on to PBA.com and give them money.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, that's uh it's there's a few kind of bad business models and bad apples that kind mm-hmm. of like give a lot of us a bad name. Yeah. Um, but you know, we're 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 not a fan of that. Like in yeah. fact it's it's very unethical to kind of like work based off of commission or anything like that or contingency because mm-hmm. um, it incentivizes some bad actors right. to do things to try to line their yeah. own pockets as opposed to doing right by the charity. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, what do you typically see when you take on a client? Them having
0: wasted time and money on
1: before they've joined you? Uh,
0: uh, just doing the wrong things. I mean, plain and simple. Um, not using their data yeah. to be able to make intelligent decisions that drive further mm-hmm. uh, impact. Right. Mm-hmm. That's so. So, actually, one of the, the the first requirement that every single client that we work with has to go through is something we call our core. It's a twelve-week intensive uh, audit and planning wow. process, so they have to give us access to all of their data, mm-hmm. all of their web analytic data, their email data, their CRM transaction data, mm-hmm. social data, like you know, all these various different sources of data that they've never really found a way to connect to each other uh, or to be able to kind of analyze, you know. Um, Together, Right. And so that's the first thing we do is we take all that. We piece it together, much like a forensic scientist would. And we're trying to piece together where are the greatest opportunities Mm -hmm. to unlock growth for this organization. And then we kind of do like a a more of a, a qualitative analysis where we flip over to the user experience. We go through all their websites, all their email campaigns, all their social media posts. And we're trying to marry up what we're seeing in the data to a specific step of the donor journey and say, what can we change? What can we Mm -hmm. alter? What can we remove? You know, what can we add to kind of get Mm -hmm. more people to the next step of the journey? And then the final thing we assess is their value proposition. So, you know, I'm so shocked at how many very large, very recognizable nonprofit organizations, I ask them what their value proposition is, and they don't know how to answer. Oh, wow. They'll start talking about things like their vision or their mission or like their the things that they do. And I said, I'm sorry, that is not right. a value proposition. The value proposition is the answer to a very fundamental question that every customer donor needs to hear the answer to, but they're never going to ask it verbally. The question is this, if I am your ideal donor or customer, mm-hmm. why should I buy from you? Why should I yeah, donate to right. you exactly, rather than some other organization or not at all? Yeah. Uh, and people don't know how to answer that. So that's one thing we do is we assess that. We help them mm-hmm. look at it from an internal point of view, external point of view, and then optimize all that stuff. So yeah, you know, and that's really
1: interesting, Tim, because of course you don't find that when you get into the tech sector, for example. Right. <laughs> you know, ask yeah. any tech founder what their va- value prop is, and you know, it'll come right off the right, right off their tongue easily, and right. and that's really interesting. And 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 which, which you know, it, part of the problem I think in nonprofit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, people do it because they have a passion for something. That's right. And not because they know how to sell. <laughs> Or right. That's right. ask the right questions, which is, I, I think that's just fascinating.
0: How do you find your clients? Uh, they find us. So we don't have a sales team or oh, anything inbound like marketing. That. Um, okay. It's inbound. all inbound marketing. Awesome. Yep. And how
1: are you, how are you typically doing that?
0: One of the, the base units of work product at next after, at next after is running experiments. Okay. So right. we take all of the experiments that we, um, develop and we publish them online. Mm-hmm. We take, uh, groups of experiments Mm. that are from similar areas. We do meta studies and then we'll put together templates, guides, eBooks. We'll do webinars twice a month. Uh, We've developed, I mentioned the different certification courses. And then we also put on conferences where we bring in some of the brightest digital marketing leaders. Most of them come from the for-profit space. We bring them together for two days to pour into our nonprofit community to kind of like say, look, here's where the future is you know, uh, and hopefully stimulate some new innovation in our space. So those are the different sources of that, uh, content.
1: That's really great. So what would you say the most outdated advice is in your industry?
0: Uh, trust me, I'm an expert. Um, so like that's, uh, (laughs)
1: that's (laughs) That's it. Trust me. I'm an expert.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I know. Like, so we, we, look, I've been a consultant. I've been a consultant for like the last, you know, Fifteen years, yep. and when you're a consultant. People look at you like you have all the answers, and we know deep down inside we don't, of right? Of course not. Um, and but do you have the integrity
1: that, to actually be honest, you know, about that? Right.
0: To be honest about that, but like you know, the problem is everyone's looking at you, and some we have to do something, and so you know, you feel all this pressure to like you know figure mm-hmm. out like what the right thing to do is, and we just don't know all the answers all the time, right? So when I discovered testing and experimentation, I realized that I don't have to have all the answers, but I now know how I can find them. Because the true experts in fundraising or in sales or whatever are the customers, the donors. And if we actually just take the time to listen to what mm-hmm. the donors are communicating through mm-hmm. their behavior and be willing to take our ideas and put them to the test, they will teach us everything we ever need to know about what works and what doesn't when it comes mm-hmm. to it being more effective marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's the thing that's been so liberating for me is just like realizing that um, I don't have to be the expert anymore. I can be experienced. Mm -hmm. I can have knowledge, Mm -hmm. um, but I can also realize that that just because it worked for this organization doesn't mean it's going to work for this organization, and that's where testing becomes you know another valuable exercise.
1: Yeah, and and that's really interesting. It's people don't realize the value of asking questions and listening. I I, I talk about this frequently when I'm interviewing people. You know, we were somehow put on this planet with two ears and one mouth for a reason. (laughs) Listen twice as much as you do speak. Right. That's how you learn. Right. And, and actually being present Mm -hmm. and actually listening because listening and hearing are two very different functions. Great points. You can hear, you you know, listening is active rather than hearing is passive. Right. Exactly. You know, um, and you have to be present and, and when any kind of active
0: listening or is going on. And that's, Becoming harder. I mean, being present is, is a harder, harder thing this day because there's so many things buzzing in our pocket, you know, or beeping on our hands that are trying to distract us from being present. Right, so,
1: well, yeah. and, and, I, and I think, and you're right. And I think it, it's kind of like, you know, before we launched this interview, is your phone turned off? Is it silenced? I mean, I, you know, my, my, my uh, I, I close everything on my desktop that would potentially, not that it's going to give me a, an, an audible sound, but something that could potentially distract me from what I'm doing. Right? right? From being present in my conversation with you and exactly. actually listening to what you're saying to me. And, you know, I, want, I just upgraded to the new uh, OS on Apple and they have something called Focus Now. Not, co- not Focus Now, but it's called Focus. <laughs> now it's called Focus. And I can put Focus on for how much of our time? For, this? for an hour. For a call I had this morning with a new, uh, a new Israeli client, for two hours. So hmm. nothing that comes up on my machine is going to bother me and take me away from being present in that conversation. That's and true. when I got on the phone with them, as I did with you, I said to them, you know, my request, unless there's some emergency that could happen, is turn off your phones. Hmm. Put them on silent. You know, I, I mean, I need, I need your full attention to be able right. to go to the next step of our,
0: of our partnership successfully. I think people respect that. I think yeah. that 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 suggests to them that like I'm giving you my undivided attention. That's right. And if we're going to have a partnership, then like that's you right. Know, we need expect to the same. That. That's yeah. exactly right. That's you know, right. and the CEO
1: founder was on that was on that call, and he was. They were like, fine. <laughs> you know, I I just time, You know, my time is valuable, and and I always say my time is more valuable to me than your time is, <laughs> <laughs> and which consequently means I'm not going to waste your time. Right. So have, you know, have that respect. So I think that's really great. So where do you see yourself, uh, Tim investing in resources here over the next year or so? Yeah. So we've got some, what's your growth look like?
0: Um, yeah, I mean, right now we're just, we're growing too fast. So, um, yeah. I'm trying to figure out how we can grow into different areas yeah. that don't require us to scale our people at the rate that we're having to scale them right now. Mm-hmm. So, um, here's, here's two areas in particular. Number one, um, About two years ago, we used to outsource all the media buying for our clients, right? So, Mm -hmm. like, all that would go to, like, a separate agency that Mm -hmm. would specialize in that. We made a conscious decision to insource that um, about two years ago. It's been, like, I mean, a huge, dramatic, like, difference in our business. I mean, we added about $10 million in top-line revenue. Fantastic. Fantastic. So, you know, that was a huge, huge kind of like decision point. And so we see there's an opportunity really just to grow that area of our business independent of people becoming, having to be our full service client, right? So we can actually just go do media buying even for other agencies Mm. if if they need them to.
1: Oh, fantastic. Yeah.
0: The second area is, um, it's kind of like a franchise model. So about, Mm. uh, I guess a year or so ago, we uh, we partnered with Salesforce um, mm-hmm. and we did a big uh, mystery donor study called the, the Global Online Fundraising Scorecard. And we gave donations to, I think it was like over 500 organizations across nine countries in four different languages. So in order to pull that off, we had to partner with different local in-market agencies mm-hmm. that can help us to execute that. And mm-hmm. because we did that, we started to form these relationships with these organizations that like, man, we really love your model. It's very, very different from our model here in say Germany or Australia or Canada or whatever Mm -hmm. even. And so we're now in discussions with these, with three separate agencies about kind of franchising our model, not just for how we do client Mm. uh, work, but also like our, um, our lead generation engine. Like that's the Mm -hmm. biggest thing, you know, that a lot of these Mm -hmm. other agencies don't have. And I'm like, well, I already have all the assets. We could go rebrand them or co-brand them and start Mm -hmm. launching them into your market and Mm -hmm. start to attract leads of people that want the things that we can then help coach your team to be able to offer uh, as an enhanced service offering from what you're currently doing today. So those are pretty cool opportunities. I mean, just if we really do want to make an impact on uh, unleashing the most generous generation in the history of the world, uh, then we probably need to go different areas of the world Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, you know, do some research there, form some partnerships and Mm -hmm. hopefully run some experiments. So pretty cool. Is your whole team headquartered down in Texas or do you have people strewn about? We, up until recently, everybody has been here. We have just one, you know, obviously with the the challenge of getting, you know, great talent, Mm -hmm. we've opened up to, you know, um, Right, having people remote. So we do have one employee that's in Rhode Island now. Yeah.
1: Okay. And and are you looking to expand that, uh, you know, given the nature of having people outside the office, being able to expand your talent pool?
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's something that um, I've been kind of pushing for, for quite some time, but mm -hmm. just getting everybody. I mean, like we do, despite the fact that we work in digital marketing, we're very much a people to people kind of person Mm -hmm. or kind of company, kind of culture. Uh, You know, we provide free lunch every day to all 40 members of our Mm -hmm, staff mm -hmm. as an opportunity to build community engagement, to get to know each other because um, that really does make a difference in terms Mm -hmm. of, you know, the quality of output you get from people. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, it, it it really does. And uh, you know, that's a, that's I think a separate conversation. Um, You know, how do you, how do you build a remote workforce because companies are doing it everywhere and be able to get that, Human connection.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: there are companies I know that that they have they bring all their employees to one location once a quarter.
0: Yep, and that's kind of what we're doing so far with mm-hmm. this this new folk. Uh, yep. you know, he's coming in about every two two weeks right now. Which yeah, is for a which, couple is, of days, which is which so. is terrific.
1: So, um, what what are the biggest opportunities and threats in your space?
0: Hmm. Um, wow. I think um, the, the probably one of the biggest ones is just, um, you know, not um, – gosh, I don't know. That's a tough question to, to answer, <laughs> honestly. You, you've tongue-tied me. I, uh, well, it's okay. <laughs> I mean, I think about it from the context of us, and I think about it in the context of our industry. Mm-hmm. I mean, the agency industry, we discuss some of those things, the glass mm-hmm. ceiling for nonprofits. We can't, right. like – Invest. We're measuring the wrong things. Efficiency, not impacts. You know, I can't pay for the kind of talent I need to solve these mm-hmm. like global problems. Um, for next after, um, I think if we can't uh, figure out how to s- scale our team uh, efficiently, you know, meaning mm-hmm. like getting getting people yeah. here and getting them ramped up and trained and equipped to do their job, then we're just going to miss a huge opportunity to help a lot of organizations. Mm-hmm. And honestly, that is the motivation. I mean, that's why we do all this stuff. Like, you know, all the stuff we do on the Institute side and the research yep. side, all that stuff loses money. I mean, tremendous amounts of money. Uh, mm-hmm. It's the nonprofit side of our business, if you will. Right.
1: Right. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah.
0: But we do it because number one, we know we want to help people. Yeah. Um, and we believe in our our mission and our vision. Also, we too, I believe that the best form of marketing is helping people. Right. And when you mm-hmm. help somebody, like you you establish trust, you build bonding and rapport, and yeah. maybe that person is not the right fit to be a customer mm-hmm. for you today, but people move a lot in the nonprofit space. Yeah. And we've had several people that worked at some small rinky-dink nonprofit, loved our stuff, followed mm-hmm. our content, then moved to a larger organization and said, look, I'm now in a position where I have, you know, right. authority and I'm hiring you, right, to come in. So, yeah. um, I think it's just a great hedge. Um, and look, if, if 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 generosity is ever going to bite you in the ass, like I, I don't want to live in a world like that. I, I think that that's one of our our mm-hmm. corporate values is erring mm-hmm. on the side of generosity mm-hmm. because I don't think that that's that's a bad strategy, you know, for business or for life. Yeah.
1: Well, you know what, and and I, I could not have said that any better myself because. That is exactly what I believe. And I think that, you know, that's a perfect, perfect way to end this conversation, <laughs> uh, frankly. So if somebody listening to this, Tim, uh, is not scared away by all the hoop jumping through <laughs> mm-hmm. of potentially working for next after. Um what should they do to take the next step if they're interested in saying, God, I'd really like to investigate working for these guys. They're pretty slick. And slick in a good way, not a bad way.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go to nextafter.com and you know, just go check out. We have you know, our job postings up there. Mm-hmm. You can learn more about a company, all of our corporate values and, mm-hmm. and vision, mission values, all that stuff mm-hmm. is, is spelled out there. Uh, you can meet some of our team too. Like we have little stories and videos and stuff and just kind of get a sense for the culture. Uh, or send me an email. I mean, just, I'm I'm simple. Tim at nextafter.com. Very, very simple. Um, And, uh, you know, let me know. I'd love to talk with you. Great.
1: Well, Tim Kachuriak, Founder and Chief Innovation and Optimization Officer of Next After. This has really been a delight. I really want to thank you for your time today. Awesome. Thank you, Carol. It was fun. Thank you for listening to Authentically Successful. If you are a successful founder or CEO who would like to be on this program, please visit verticalelevationcom slash podcast slash apply. If you learned something from this interview and it made a difference, please share it on LinkedIn or Twitter. You can also do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend. And if you know of someone who would be a great guest, tag them on LinkedIn or Twitter to let them know about the show and include the hashtag